This is an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. The sign over the porch of the purple Victorian cottage is faded, and Amelia nearly walks past it. Island Books. Alice Island's exclusive provider of fine literary content since 1999. No man is an island. Every book is a world. That was Scott Brick narrating the storied life of A.J. Fickery by Gabrielle Seven, which was named Best Fiction of 2014 by Audiophile Magazine. As everyone knows, the audiobook business is booming. And while technology certainly has a hand in this, that doesn't hold a candle to the sheer talent and virtuosity of the narrators who bring these books to life. When you think of the first generation of audiobook narrators, there's Barbara Rosenblatt, there's George Guidel, Barbara Caruso, among others. And in the second generation, one of the names that stands out is Scott Brick, someone who can seemingly narrate anything and who men want to listen to as much as women do. Whether it's narrating science fiction, thrillers, or straight-up histories, Scott, in his understated way, brings the listener into the heart of a story. For 20 years, he's been the voice in our ear guiding us through a world of books. In fact, today, June 10th, marks Scott Brick's 20th year as an audiobook narrator. And almost immediately, a star was born. But Scott didn't just reach professional heights quickly. He's remained there consistently for 20 years. I knew Scott began as a classically trained stage actor. So when I had the opportunity to speak with him, I began with the obvious question. How did you get into this wild and wacky world of audiobooks? Well, a a buddy of mine from college, Bob Westall, a man who will always drink free when he's around me for the rest of his life, uh, he did me a great blessing. He was working for Dove Audio. They had a number of people who went on to just stellar careers in, in audio production and narration. Stefan Rudnicki and Gabrielle DeCure were working there. And uh, after Bob's introduction, and I uh, auditioned for Stefan, he gave me my first job. Then the day I came in to do it, it was Dan Musselman's last day. And Dan is now basically head of the West Coast division of Penguin Random House Audio. And so on my first day, it was his last day, we kind of passed each other in the hallway as he was heading out the door. And he handed me a business card and he said, I'm going to be building a studio. I'm going to be needing people maybe in about a month. Why don't you give me a call? And he said, now this card won't be good anymore because, you know, it, it says Dove Audio. So he writes his phone number on it. And, uh, and I called him and I'd easily more than half, maybe 55, 60% of the jobs I've done in my career have been for him. And years and years go by, over a decade, and it was about six years ago, I guess, my girlfriend was moving in, and I was trying to make room and getting rid of a bunch of stuff in my garage so we can put her stuff in storage. And as I was going through this box, it took me two hours to go through this box. There was just so much paperwork. And and I got to the very bottom of the box, and there was a business card and with some handwriting on it that I recognized. And I said, wait a minute, I know that handwriting. Wait a minute, I know that number. And I turned it over and saw whose card it was. And my hand started shaking really bad. And I'm almost hyperventilating when I when I understood the significance. And Gina, the production manager who works for us and, and Tess, they, they turned to me and they said, what is it? What What is it? And I held it out to them and I said, this is my career. It was Dan Musselman's business card. And uh, 
I, I got to tell that story at a, a dinner party that we hosted years ago uh, that Dan was there for, and I, I showed it to him. I handed it back to him, and it was framed <laughs> this would... time. Yeah, so <laughs> it was, uh, it's, a, it's a treasured artifact in my home. This is really a, not a fair question, but I'm asking it anyway. You became successful so quickly. You started in 1999, mm-hmm. and by 2004, you were a golden voice. <laughs> I know, that was crazy. From Audiophile Magazine. <laughs> Just from a dispassionate point of view, what is it that you think you brought to the table that gave you such quick entree? That is such an unfair question. It is an unfair <laughs> I'm, question. I'm kidding, I mean, I'm kidding. Yeah, well... no, I've been asked that before, and I, don't, I, I can't say definitively, but yeah. the only thing I can assume is that something I brought with me to this career was just, I'm such a passionate fan of books. I just love literature, and I always have. And a number of reviews that I've gotten have said that they could tell I was obviously passionate about the subject matter, and it's true. I will never forget the day when... I, I got uh, tapped to do a, a book in the Dune franchise, and I said, but, I, I, you know, I don't want to guess the pronunciations. I can't. I'm too much of a fan. I, I, Frank Herbert's, you know, original six novels were, oh, my God, I treasured them back in college. So when Dan Musselman put me in touch with Brian Herbert, Frank's son, and Brian says, oh, sure, I'll, I'll fax you my dad's notes. What, what's your number? I will never forget this visceral thrill of seeing this thermal paper fax roll out of my machine with Frank's pronunciation notes. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a geek. While Omnius might be satisfied with total extinction, the autonomous robot had no desire for such a final solution. He remained quite interested in these creatures, especially Gilbertus Albans, whom he had raised as a surrogate son after removing him from the squalid slave pens. In a purely scientific sense, Erasmus needed to keep sufficient organic material for his laboratory and field studies of human nature. They couldn't all be killed. Just most of them. I've never lost the, the fanboy inside of me. I don't care how many books I've done or how often I've met a particular author. I'm just thrilled by the fact I get to do this for a living. <laughs> You're also a writer. Mm-hmm. Do you think because you write that you bring something more to your narration? Or because you narrate, does that bring something more to your writing? I'm just wondering how one influences the other. I think they both influence each other. And this is not a knock against any authors. When we began our part in the process, the book sometimes have not gone all the way through the copy editing stage. And so we'll see some of the mistakes that are typically made that have to be corrected. And so that kind of gets drummed into my brain, so I know, okay, I can't make that mistake as I'm doing my own writing. But I think my narration is more informed by writing than writing informed by narration, because I teach students um, at all levels uh, in audiobook narration, and I tell them, I say, even if you're not a writer, go read a book about writing. Read Stephen King's book on writing, or better yet, listen to the audiobook because he reads it himself, and it's marvelous. And I always say, if you just switch out the word, do a find and replace. For write, replace it with narrate. And writer, replace it with narrator. Because his advice is so good for us to follow. For instance, the most basic one, he says, if you want to be a good writer, no, he says, if you want to be a better writer, read voraciously. Well, that's, it's, that's true of narrators as well. The more you read, the better you will get at your job. Even when it's, you're not being paid for it, you're just doing it just as, as a fan. 
the more you understand story structure and it gets locked into your brain, the better you are at helping the author. It's not our job to do their work for them. They're, they're fine on their own. But there are things that we can assist with and at least not get in the way of. I think of you know, whodunit. The author always puts in a red herring character. There's always the character that they want you to think did it. Well, you know, that's because it's, it's misdirection. It's like a magician, you know. Look at the big flashy hand over here and don't look at the sleight of hand behind my back. Well, the killer is hiding behind the writer's back, kind of hiding in plain sight, really, peeking out from behind. I make the red herring character as dislikable as I can without getting caught. I always say, give a hint of it without getting caught. And I make the, the real killer mild as mother's milk because I want it to be the surprise, the same way that the author wants it to be. And so, again, for narrators just starting out, I say learn why an author does what they do so that you can do the exact same thing. Let me just ask you, this just occurred to me, has your reading for pleasure changed at all since you've begun narrating books? Yeah. You know, my first 10 years in this industry, I, I didn't have any time to read for pleasure at all. Uh, I was just too busy, and I missed it so desperately. And I think actually it was about maybe five years ago. I picked up a uh, biography of Humphrey Bogart, and it was ugh, 600 pages long, and I thought, I'll never finish this. I hadn't finished a book in over a decade, you know, for pleasure. As soon as I cracked the cover, I realized how much I'd missed it. And so now I, I carve out time to read, whereas I didn't have to before. So that's certainly changed. And frankly, the other way it's changed is I have to listen a lot more than I used to. I would listen to audiobooks before I started in this career, but um, not as often as I do now, only because that's really the only time I get to to read is when I'm listening. You know, as I'm on my way out to Random House, uh, Penguin Random House in Woodland Hills, you know, it's about a 25-minute drive from my house. Great. I get an hour's worth done every day on my commute or as I'm exercising. So it's definitely changed, but I think changed for the better. You, you still do stage work. It's been a while. I did a, uh, worked on a film recently, but it's hard doing stage work. You know, if you're playing Cyrano and you're, and many times, shouting, you know, for three and a half hours, it's tough to go into the studio the next day and record for eight. John Rubenstein manages it flawlessly. Whenever I see him out in uh, uh, Woodland Hills at a Penguin Random House, I'm like, hey, how you doing? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm good. Here for about four hours. Then I go and I have a performance tonight. I'm thinking, man, that guy's got vocal cords of steel. <laughs> it's also so different as well, the way you use your voice, because with stage, of course, you're yeah. you're talking to the back row, mm -hmm. but here it's so intimate. Yeah, and I, and I remind my students all the time, most people who get into audiobook narration come at it from either the stage or on camera. And actors are raised, basically, from school, taught that there are two paradigms. You're either reaching the back row or you're reaching six feet away. But I remind them, here, this microphone is six inches away. And really, the listener's ear is right in front of your lips. Most of us are listening on, on devices yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So the kind of intimacy that you can get by leaning in close, I call it the proximity effect. If you've got um, subtext going on, if you've got the thoughts that you're supposed to convey, but the listener doesn't know that they're in italics, that's a visual cue for the reader of the dead tree version, right? <laughs> but we have to let them know that these are thoughts, so get really close to the microphone. 
and drop your volume and it sounds like you're whispering in their ear. And it can be either really creepy or really informative, you know, but it's it's a tool we have, and uh, thank God for it. Speaking of creepy, you're in cold blood. Oh. That was one of the scariest books. I, I would have to just stop and <laughs> turn every light on in the house and, and look at the dog to make sure he wasn't reacting or responding to anything outside. It, it just terrified me, terrified I, me. I, I'm... I'm simultaneously really sorry to have done that and so pleased to hear that because uh, I remember, I think it was, um, the election was in its last couple of months and um, there was a New York Times political writer who was following the Clinton campaign and she was going through Kansas. She was very close by where the, where it took place and she she had decided that she would uh, uh, start listening to audiobooks to help her in her drives from state to state. She said that uh, she would listen to them thematically. So when she got towards Kansas, she started listening to In Cold Blood, and she said, I frightened her so badly that one night at midnight at a little service station, uh, she was she was about to pump gas, but when she looked across the field, she saw a silhouette, like in the moonlight, of what she swore was the clutter farm, and she couldn't get out of the car for 20 minutes. I was just stunned because... You know, when we're done with a job, we we think that the work is done, but it's it's an interactive experience. Just because I'm done talking doesn't mean that all the work has been done. The listener adds so much themselves. Mm-hmm. So that fear is largely a result. It's the words. Sure, it's it's my performance of them, but it's also your imagination, and it's such an integral part of it. Yeah, I'm delighted to know that people are still being affected by work I did 10 years ago. It's it's kind of marvelous. Do you try to talk to the author if the author is living before you begin to narrate? I try to. It's not always possible. I think it's always better when you can talk to the author. Or, again, in the case of the Dune series, the author's son, the, the, the keeper of the knowledge, the, the one who really knows the secrets. I got Some of the best direction I ever received on a book came from the author. I was doing a book by John Twelvehawks. I'd done a trilogy of his previously, and then he wrote this book called Spark, which is about a guy who has a real-life syndrome. It's called Cotard syndrome, where you believe that you're dead. You uh, Traumatic brain injury, and suddenly you are completely shut off from human emotion. You don't understand what that is. And you feel you are convinced that you were dead. It sounds crazy, but it's true. And in this case, this guy had been manipulated into becoming a high-priced contract killer because he was the perfect guy, right? He's never going to feel remorse. And so I started reading the book, and I'm kind of seeing him so emotionally detached, almost like a Mr. Spock, right, like a Vulcan. And then the author sends a note through the director. He says, please remind Scott that the main character, which is, you know, the book is told uh, from his point of view, uh, first-person narration, remind him that this man's plight isn't just that he doesn't have emotion. It's that he lost it, and he's trying to find it. And suddenly I... It just completely changed the way I approached the book. Forget what your parents told you. Forget what you were taught as a child and what you learned on your own. Forget what you think is right and wrong. Do all this, and you might become me, a spark contained within a shell that stood in a doorway on 62nd Street in Brooklyn, the reading became very different. It, it went from sounding like I was reading something 
to more like I was sharing something yeah. in the moment, discovering it. The nuance of that. Yes. Yeah. What What is your process for determining the voice of the character? You just gave us an example here. How do you go through that? Because especially in a series, for example, if you know you're going to be creating this character through any number of books. Sure. That's the thing. Some You'll, you'll create a, a voice for a character in what you don't realize is book one, only to find out that he's, you know, a walk-on in book one. Well, when, by the time they write book nine, he's the, the main, main character. Event. The way I always approach a book, if it's fiction, is that uh, the main character's me. It just is. I always say lead with who you are, then show them who you can become. So my on-guard position, my neutral position, basically, is that it's always me. And I'm just trying to react in a way that would be appropriate if whatever's happening to the character is happening to me. From there, then you start looking at the other characters as a way of, well, they're a little bit further away from me, right? And you'll add on things that whatever's mentioned in the script, you're always looking for a description of the voice. Uh, and not everybody does it. Or when when that happens, sometimes it's really, it's really done truly artfully. I think my absolute favorite was a, in a book that I wasn't narrating, but um, it was Raymond Chandler. He said his character had a voice like cigarettes and low-shelf booze. <laughs> and that's gold for a narrator, right? That's what you're looking for. And then you're looking for, you know, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, education level, that kind of thing. And something that comes in really handy is casting a book in your head. Who would this be? Because I don't think our job is to be a... An, uh, an impersonator, uh, an impressionist, I should say. I'm not going to do an impression of a celebrity. Of course, yeah. But Dan Musselman always says, if you hear it in your head, the listener will hear it in their ear. And I think that is absolutely true. Years ago, I did do a character like Mr. Spock because um, I narrate the, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant by Stephen R. Donaldson. And there is, in that series, a race of beings who communicate non-verbally. They communicate mentally with one another. But when they're around humans, uh, they're forced to speak, and it's like speaking in another language, and they don't have the nuance. And it's always described as being flat, emotionless, you know, without affect. And I suddenly realized it's not that they don't have emotion. It's that they're, they don't know how to express it. And, oh, my God, that's Mr. Spock. They're all Vulcans, right? So I've, I'm such a Star Trek geek. And I've played Spock in, a, in an audiobook production, and so I can, I can put on that, that rhythm, that cadence, you know, the, you are my superior officer, you are also my friend, I have been and always shall be yours. I can give that kind of repressed, you know, read, it's like pulling on a really comfortable sweatshirt, you know, so I just kind of gave it a little of that, again, without, hopefully without getting caught. And it, it's so interesting having just your voice to convey a world, a character, uh, as opposed to the physicality that yeah. you have in film or on the stage. So the toolbox is limited to the voice, mm -hmm. but at the same time, because it's just your voice, you can play such a wide range of characters. You know, there's, there's this belief that I, I've read it so many times that when you lose a sense... If you go blind or you lose your hearing, your other senses start to compensate. Well, if you only use your voice, you realize that it is a greater tool than you ever knew. You can convey so much with so little. 
And I also encourage my students to remember that you can say a lot by saying nothing at all. You know, there are authors like um, Nelson DeMille. He uses a phrase all the time, either he didn't respond or he didn't reply. Because they understand authors like him. They understand that there's a grammar to silence. And when a pause like that, a silence like that is implied, I do it. Which is probably why people speed up the, you know, as, <laughs> jack up the speed when they're, when they're listening to me. But I'm doing it for a reason because you, the author knows that you are saying a lot by not responding. And I have to honor that. So, yes, it's the voice, but it's also the pausing that helps. You have your own studio and you do your own publishing of audiobooks? Yes, I started in 2006, 2007. It was the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. I had been approached by, I guess it was Penguin, before they merged with Random House. Penguin hired Books on Tape to do the production. Books on Tape, of course, was owned, at the time was owned by Random House Audio. Now it's all one big happy family. But at the time, it was a collaboration. And they came to me, I want to say, in 2003 and offered me um, essentially book seven in the series. There had been two trilogies, and then they were going to do four more. So uh, Runes of the Earth. They gave it to me in 2003, and I leapt so high in the air that I literally I I touched my hands on the, on the ceiling tiles. I was so wildly excited because they were my favorite books of all time. And I, we, we did it, and I said, well, so this is book seven. Are we going to do one through six, or have those already been done? And they said, oh, no, nobody's ever done them. I said, well, let's do it. Nah, I don't know. We'll see how well this one sells. And they never did. They never did one through six. And book eight came along, and I guess seven hadn't sold well enough. And I said, well, can I have it? And I got in touch with the author. He put me in touch with his agent. I made an offer. I paid for the rights. So I licensed them myself, and I thought, well, I've, I've got everything I need, you know. I recorded it. I, you know, did all the post on it. And uh, yeah, I started selling it from my website. Then I went back and I said, you guys don't mind if I do one through six. They said, no, sure. So I went and I paid for those too. And uh, ultimately I wound up doing nine out of 10. Somebody else uh, grabbed book nine and didn't hire me. Uh, but then Penguin came back for book 10 and they did hire me. So uh, it's been a remarkable thing. And suddenly I was like, hey, get a load of me. I'm a publisher. <laughs> <laughs> it's been very rewarding. I've gone on to do, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 other books. It's just a thrill. You know, these are things that are my favorites. But I think there's enough fans out there like me who who just dearly love them and great. I'll make them available. Is there a book or project that you're particularly proud of? Ooh. Hmm. There are a number. You know, things that um, when they matter to me personally, it can't help but become a favorite of yours. So obviously things like the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant matter to me a great deal. All the books that I read in, in high school and college, like I'm a science fiction geek, so you know the Dune series and the Foundation books by Isaac Asimov. But every once in a while, a book will come along that you absolutely fall in love with, and you can't imagine not having worked on them. I was given a book by Highbridge Audio several years back. It was called The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery. And it was a book about a bookseller, a little tiny bookstore on the East Coast. And he was a bit of a misanthrope. And he was mourning the death of his wife. And he suddenly found himself a father in very crazy, unforeseen circumstances. And it was about how his life changed. And I was going through an illness at the time, which was also a, a major 
subplot of the book. And it's a short book, and I probably could have finished it in three days, but I just, I was crying, just weeping with joy and with sadness, you know, about what was happening to all the characters in this book. It mattered to me so much, I stretched it out to six days because I just didn't want it to end. I'm really proud of that book. I'm also hugely proud of the, uh, of the Passage Saga, the Passage Trilogy by Justin Cronin. We did book one in Los Angeles at Penguin Random House and uh, just fell in love with it. Christina Rooney was, was my director, and she and I, for two years, were saying, when is the next book coming? When is the next book coming? Well, the book came along in August of 2012, and I remember it was a Monday, and I was wor going to work on a three-day book, um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then I was going to start on Friday in Los Angeles. And the first book in the series was 32, 33 hours long, so I knew I was going to have to work for like 12 days straight. And that Monday was the day I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And I get the call from my doctor, and he says, yeah, that's sorry. And uh, I said, huh, okay, let me get back to you. And one of the first things I did was I called up Random House and said, can we record this on Friday in New York? Because my girlfriend uh, knew somebody who was administering a clinical trial, and it was happening here in New York. And I was like, I can still do it. I just need to do it there. And I remember thinking, are you being an idiot, worrying about work at a time like this? And every once in a while, I think anybody in any kind of position, in any kind of work, will say, you know, I'm not going to wish on my deathbed, I'm not going to wish I had worked an extra day. In my case, I'm, I'm not going to wish I had recorded one more book. But I would have regretted it hugely if I had not done that one, because it's so beautiful. This was book two, the 12. Tell me about Theo now, my father. Your father? Please? She laughed. All right, then. Your father. First of all, he was very brave. A brave man. He loved your mother very much. But sad. True. He was sad. But that was what made him so brave, you see. Because he did the bravest thing of all. You know what that is? To have hope. Yes, to have hope when there seems to be none. I cannot say enough for Penguin Random House and the way they bent over backward to help me because I was so behind. Because I was in treatment, you know, and I'm, I'm doing split, <laughs> split shifts. I'd go and record in the morning. I'd go down to the hospital and get the treatment. I'd come back and I'd work until late at night. There was twice I fell asleep while narrating because I was so tired. I was so exhausted. And unbeknownst to me, the producer is, he's calling Christina Rooney in, in Los Angeles, who was supposed to direct it. And he's saying, what can we do? Is this, is this a cancer? Is this he's diabetes? You know, I had a couple of you know, things that people know about me when I'm working in the studio. Okay, every once in a while I have to stop and eat or check my blood sugar. They went bent over backwards to find ways to help me and to support me so I could finish this. And, and let me be late, even though it was such a crazy long production process and a crazy long book. It was only three years later when the, th the third book in the series came out, when it came along and uh, was the City of Mirrors, 
as I was recording it, I started crying every day. At some point, I would start crying. And, and yes, it was the material. It was beautifully written. But it suddenly, I suddenly realized how much it meant to me that three years previously, Dan Zitt and everybody at Penguin Random House had helped me rather than replaced me because they so easily could have. And in some ways, they maybe should have. It might have been a lot easier for them and saved them a lot of money. But they didn't. They kept me on it, and I'm grateful every day. And I am hugely proud of that as a result because I was making I was making choices in that series I don't think I've ever made before, character voices and such, which I'm usually the subtlety guy. But for Zero, I don't want to say too much about who he is, uh, but he's referenced throughout the series. And in book three... There's a long stretch where it's from his POV, and I approached that very differently than I've ever done in an audiobook before. And, and I keep getting emails saying that I scared the crap out of people. So I figure, okay, great. Did my job. I'm proud. Once again. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, I want to thank you for coming in and uh, for scaring me any number of times. It is my pleasure. <laughs> it is my privilege to get to scare you. <laughs> thank you. Thank I'm... you for having me in. It's been wonderful. That's actor Scott Brick, who's celebrating his 20th year narrating audiobooks, and we're all richer for it. This has been an extended edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. Subscribe to Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. And if you like to listen to books, check out audiophilemagazine.com for reviews of hundreds and hundreds of audiobooks. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.